Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome back to Reliability Matters. I'm so glad you're here. Um, it's been a little while since we've talked about solder paste, and uh, there have been uh, quite a bit of uh, conversations and vi uh, video interviews and technical articles about solder paste, in particular low temp solder paste. So I thought it would be a good idea to uh, bring in uh, my friend and my colleague, uh, Tim Jensen from Indium Corporation. Welcome, Tim. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, just for a little bit of background, you and I have known each other, you know, off and on uh, in the electronics industry, rubbing shoulders at trade shows and, you know, uh, probably uh, having a beer or two uh, after a show. Uh, and, um, and we both serve together on the SMTA board of directors. Um, so I see a lot of you uh, over the last, I've seen a lot of you over the last year, usually in this format. You know, I, I, I don't know what you look like in real life anymore, but uh, I've certainly memorized your digital profile. But uh, thanks, for, yeah. uh, thanks for being here. Let's talk about solder paste, shall we? Absolutely. So the I, best I, topic in, there is, right? Best topic there is if you're a solder paste person, right? Uh, so I, I did a little bit of research on solder paste selection. I mean, I know, I know about solder paste. I don't know what you know about solder paste, but I know enough, you know, because our, our job in, in the cleaning world is to remove the residues your stuff leaves on a board, you know, uh, or doesn't, you know, it, it depends on the, on the type of paste. But from what I understand, um, in a real simplistic uh, world, you know, there's basically three things that one looks for in solder paste, or at least three of the considerations. One would be the alloy type, one would be the flux type, and then any special characteristics. Um, now I know that's just probably the press box, 36,000 foot view. There's probably a lot more details in the minutia of solder paste selection. So let's, let's go over what the processes are for solder paste selection. Um, tell me about um, alloys first. What are the different types of alloys and maybe what would drive someone to select one alloy, uh, alloy over another? Yeah, absolutely. As you, as you mentioned, kind of when you look back at solder paste, the basic construction is a mixture of a flux and a metal powder. And so as you, as you stated, the very first thing you got to think about is what alloy or metal powder are you going to use? And there's, there's a number of different characteristics that you might use for, uh, for determining that. But generally speaking, it's either a melting point requirement, uh, an environmental requirement, or a mechanical reliability requirement. And so those are generally the three things that the people are looking at when they're trying to select uh, the appropriate alloy. And so if, if you look at kind of the mass of electronics that are built today, most of them are using lead-free solder, what is often referred to as SAC 305, which is tin, silver, copper alloy. Um, and I would say that's the de facto standard that, uh, that people would be using. And so you know, that would be where people would start with um, from, a, from a material perspective. That has a melting point of about 217 degrees C. And so generally speaking, when you talk about the alloy, 
you want the, the use condition to be 30 to 50 degrees below the melting point of that solder at least. Um, so that's one, one characteristic is, okay, when I'm, when I'm using this product, is it ever going to approach something that's within 30 degrees of the melting point of the solder? If so, you probably want to select something higher in melting point. Um, and then the next thing is looking at kind of the mechanical reliability attributes. And so, so certainly because this tin, silver, copper alloy is used uh, quite commonly throughout the electronics industry, I would say its base level of reliability is pretty good. Um, for the majority of applications. However, there are, there are certain niche applications where, where it's, it's actually not the ideal choice. So for example, uh, one, one case might be uh, under the hood applications for automotive where the, uh, the temperature gets quite high. You know, so you're talking temperatures often at sustained uh, time periods above 150 degrees C, for example. Well, in that case, the, the tin, silver, copper alloys start to degrade with time. And so over time, they become less mechanically reliable. And so in those cases, you want to look at an alloy that perhaps has either a higher melting point or improved mechanical reliability attributes. In, in another case, another example would be um, for very small solder joints that are subject to a lot of mechanical shock. So again, Tin, silver, copper tends to be somewhat of a rigid alloy, and so on mechanical shock, you can get some brittle-type fractures with it, um, especially on high-impact-type high uh, situations. And so those are a couple of scenarios where you might want to choose a different alloy that, uh, that more adequately suits your specific needs. So I would say first looking at the melting point requirements, and then second looking at the, the mechanical or physical reliability uh, requirements of your specific application. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, particularly we don't want the, um, the board to reflow uh, in use and we don't want the components to fall off uh, due to shock in use. So th that makes a lot of sense. Um, what about uh, a flux selection type? Uh, what I, obviously there's, I look at the world and you know, I'm in the cleaning business as you know, so I look in the world as clean and, or dirty, right? So. Uh, I see uh, water-soluble fluxes, rosin, uh, RMA-type fluxes, ROLO fluxes, as dirty. And um, you used to see all the no-cleans as clean. Uh, and uh, although I look at things differently today, not that the no-cleans are dirty, but you know, when you, if the no-cleans are completely clean, we don't clean anything off the board, and then therefore there are other dirty things on the board. So uh, we're always coming up with a justification to clean. But what, um, what are the... the motivating factors what should one consider when you know they've already checked off the right alloy now now they have to look at flux species uh, what would i know clean and no clean would be a very common driver it's probably the most common driver but um, touch on what are some of the other factors that one might consider when they are selecting a, a flux yeah as you as you said that that type of end process how you're going to use the flux and and whether you plan to remove the flux residues or leave the residues on. Like, as you, as you stated, no clean doesn't mean no residue. It means a residue that's relatively benign and, and is in many cases is not going to cause any electrical reliability type of, type of issues. Um, however, 
when you start looking at high reliability applications, you're going to want to clean off that residue regardless. And so you want to you want to select a flux that's appropriate for that processing condition. Um, and then secondarily, you want to select a flux that's appropriate for cleaning off the oxides in your specific scenario. So there's two things to look at relative to oxides. There's the oxides from the metal powder that's mixed in there. Um, so for example, if that's the SAC alloy, you have to clean off those oxides so that during reflow, all those particles wet together and coalesce into one, one uniform solder joint. But you also have to clean off the oxides on the surfaces of the areas to be soldered. The, the solder is only going to wet to those metallizations if they're oxide free um, so that, that the wetting can occur. And so looking at those scenarios, you select a flux that's appropriate for that um, soldering type condition. So certain oxides are more tenacious, more difficult to remove, may need a more aggressive flux to remove those oxides. Um, and we can help obviously decide the appropriate flux for that. And then the, I would say the third attribute is the, the physical use of the material. So for example, in many cases, people are going to stencil print uh, the solder paste onto, onto a printed circuit board. Well, the stencil printing process requires a flux that has a very specific rheology that allows it to fill the apertures, release from those apertures. That flux may totally be inappropriate if you're doing some type of dispensing or jetting application. And so the, the process in which you're applying the material also dictates what flux is, is appropriate. And so I would say kind of those, those three scenarios, the end and uh, disposition of that flux, are you going to clean off the residue or not? The uh, oxides that you're removing, how tenacious are they? How difficult are they to remove? And then how are you applying that solder paste, you know, via printing, dispensing, jetting, or some other, some other methodology? Those are kind of the three factors that you would look at for trying to determine the most appropriate flux. Oh, excellent. Talk to me about low temperature solder. I'm hearing more talk and reading more articles about low temperature. I'm seeing, uh, it may have been you or someone else on a panel recently even talking about it, but uh, what are some of the advantages of low, uh, low temperature solder and how much lower a temperature are lower temperature solders? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of really exciting and interesting attributes of, of lower temperature solders that, that have drawn a significant amount of interest. And so I'll, I'll get to the different melting points in, in a moment, but just in a kind of holistic uh, picture, as you reduce the melting point of the solder, you, you then can reduce the thermal excursion that you're going through to reflow it. So if you can reflow at a lower temperature, you can often use uh, lower cost uh, materials for your PCB, your components. Um, so you have a cost, potential cost advantage. Um, secondarily, um, at a lower reflow temperature, you're generally going to have less deformation of the material. So one, one issue, for example, is warping of components and boards, and that can create different uh, defects like we call head and pillow or non-wet open type defects. So lower reflow temperatures, 
results in in less warping or or deformation of the of the surfaces that you're soldering so that can improve the process yield and then third low temperature solders potentially enable you to do secondary assembly on a circuit board that that already has traditional uh, sack solder on there so for example you you built a circuit board and you want to put on some type of rf shield afterwards well you don't want to use the same melting point solder there or the entire circuit board will reflow again so a lower temperature solder can potentially enable you to do additional assemblies on that circuit board without dramatically affecting the rest of the uh the solder joints that are already built on there and and to your point of well how much lower is it there's a lot of different options depending on the application and there's no there's no perfect scenario generally speaking um these these alloys often contain either the metal indium or the metal bismuth and as you reduce the melting point you you can obviously reduce the thermal excursion that you're going through from a reflow perspective but they often have downsides uh, from a reliability perspective for example bismuth tends to be quite brittle um, so so that means that um, you have uh, limitations relative to um, you know what type of scenario that product's going to be used in if you talk about indium Indium forms a, a intermetallic with tin that's very low melting point at about 118 degrees C. So while maybe that's acceptable in certain situations, if the melting point's 118 degrees C, you probably want to be in an application that's no higher than 80 degrees C from an operation perspective. So it limits the upside on, on some of your some of your operating conditions. And then then we have some alloys that are what we'll call um, slightly lower than than sac reflow temperatures, and so so these are alloys that are similar to tin silver copper, but give you a little bit more process window. So, for example, an alloy might melt at 200 to 210 degrees C. So it's not a what I would call a truly a low temperature alloy, but it's slightly lower than the tin silver copper alloys gives you potentially a slightly wider process window relative to reducing the peak temperature that, that you're undergoing from a reflow perspective. Yeah, that makes sense. So when someone is selecting a solder paste, alloys, flux, uh, temperature, all that, uh, there, are, there are drivers on the, on the board design that would, that would steer someone toward one selection or another. Um, there are also on many SMT assemblies a variety of different types of parts on there. You've got these um, bottom terminated components and QFNs uh, that probably require special uh, paste characteristics, and then you've got connectors and you've got other, you know, maybe high mass uh, 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 soldering uh, pads or leads that might, on their own, draw another conclusion to the. Uh, paste selection. Generally, I think one would prefer to minimize the number of thermal excursions a, a board goes through, through a reflow oven. So uh, is, is it acceptable, is it normal practice to uh, have one paste selection based upon one specific criteria that doesn't necessarily match 
or is, is unneeded for the rest of the board. Does that make sense? You know, do, how much do we pull to one side on our selection at the expense of the other side for other types of components? Who wins in this battle? Yeah, it, we, we see this a lot when, when there's a very specific defect that's causing a, an issue on a line. So for example, you talked about the bottom ter terminated components. And so they go, oh, we're, we're, we're getting low yields because we're, we're having 50% voiding. So we need something that solves the voiding issue there. And as you, as you said, you can select something that dramatically reduces the voiding in that scenario. Um, but does it have the balance of attributes that, that are not creating issues elsewhere? And this is the, really the delicate balance of, of solder paste evaluations is really to look at the balance of attributes and, and no one solder paste anywhere is going to be the best at every attribute. Right. And so it's, it's looking at, well, which attributes are most important for me and and then balancing out the, the the other attributes and and as you said sometimes people make rash decisions based on the the defect of the day that they're that they're facing uh, but it can cause consequences down the line and and so we've seen cases where oh we solved the qfn voiding issue for example but now our stencil life is is terrible we're replacing the solder paste a lot. We're getting print-related defects, you know, things like that. So, so you've just shifted the problem to, to somewhere else. And then you start another evaluation to find the best printing solder paste, right? And then and then you switch back to the old paste, right? So it's it's really finding that balance of attributes. And again, the I doubt there'll ever be the one product that is best across the board for every attribute you can possibly imagine. Right, right. Uh, that's why uh, Indium and other uh, manufacturers of solder paste stay in business. Uh, that's why you have a large portfolio of products, right? Uh, rather than, you know, you know su super paste. <laughs> we, there's no such thing as super paste, right? Uh, that'll keep your, your engineers busy for, and chemists busy for years to come. Uh, let's talk about now that we've selected our solder paste uh, and uh, with its uh, proper alloy and, and flux and special characteristics, let's talk a little bit about... Um, in-use um, in information like uh, uh, handling. What, what are best practices for solder paste handling? And when I say handling, I'm talking storage, I'm talking um, uh, use, you know, not so much selection of, of materials, but the actual uh, uh, use of solder paste. What are some of the best practices? Yeah, this is, this is a common question that we get a lot. And it's, there's not a single perfect answer for every product. Some, some products will vary slightly, but in general, one of the most important things that I try to stress to people is that solder paste is actually quite thermally stable. So what that means is that if you leave it out for 12 hours, 24 hours, it's not like the material instantaneously goes bad. It's not like some of these um, epoxy materials that, that cure at room temperature or things like that where it'll instantly become bad so so one of the things that i really try to stress is within reasonable limits solder paste is really quite stable and so that what i what i use that is to say all right if you're going to store it for a long time store it in the refrigerator um, but under short time periods i would say of a month or less 
storing it at room temperature is perfectly acceptable. Really the only downside that happens at room temperature storage is over time you'll get what we call flux separation. The metal powder is a lot more dense than the flux portion. So that means that over time, the powder actually sinks to the bottom and the flux rises to the top. So you get a kind of a non-homogeneous material. Um, this is not a, a complete failure of the material. You can actually stir it back and, and bring it back to homogeneity. Um, but but it, it does create some risks. Different people will stir at different conditions. And so, so storing in refrigeration prevents that, that separation from happening. And so it's a good practice for long-term storage to, to store it in a refrigerator. But if once you open a jar of solder paste, there's no need to worry about, all right, put it back in the jar, quick, get it back in the refrigerator. Um, because that transfer back and forth in and out of the refrigerator causes its own issues. You get moisture condensation, things like that, that can happen. Plus you, you, you lose track of how old is that solder paste? You know, you start mixing different jars into one reclaimed jar and, and nobody really understands how long that paste has been around. And so, so I, I try to keep things as simple as possible. Once you open it, leave it, leave it out at room temperature. Um, if you're, if you're not going to use it for more than a month, you're probably at a situation where you should just scrap the material. Um, it's, it's a safer option than, than trying to, to bring it back and forth between the refrigerator and not. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We talked earlier about, uh, when we were talking about uh, pace selection, we talked a little bit about, um, in-use environment, uh, whether it was going to be exposed to shock and vibration or high temperatures. Uh, what are the other, are there other in-use environmental considerations besides the temperature and, and the amount of shock and vibration that, that would drive someone to choose one type of paste over another? Yeah, yeah certainly I would say the three, the three big reliability terms are mechanical reliability, you know, is the solder joint reliable enough for the situation that it's that it's in? Is it a cell phone? Is it a uh, you know uh, engine control unit in in the in a vehicle? Is it something that's in a harsh environment and out in the environment? Um, so um, that mechanical reliability is one thing, and that's that's you know something that you can you can understand from uh, doing different types of uh, thermal cycling, things like that, to, to stress the, the, the solder and, and assess how reliable it's going to be for a variety of different situations. The second would be electrical reliability. And this is, this is really primarily the, uh, the residues that are on the board. And this comes down to um, when you solder, the, you have basically uh, a mixture that's 50% metal and 50% flux by volume. So after you reflow it, you have all this residue left behind. Now, in many situations, that residue may be perfectly acceptable to leave on the board. And that doesn't mean that there is, there is no residue. One of the things that sometimes people confuse is no clean doesn't mean no residue. It means that you're intentionally leaving contamination on the board and you think it's good enough for that specific application. 
But as we know, as you go into higher reliability applications, maybe very high frequency uh, RF type applications, the residue can have uh, an impact on that on that uh, overall assembly. And so, therefore, uh, do you do you uh, clean it off? And how do you clean it off? That that will come back to well, what flux do you use for the for the process? And then the third bucket of reliabilities is thermal reliability, and this is you know how efficiently does the does the solder dissipate the heat? And this is this is typically not a not an issue for small solder joints like for capacitors and resistors and things like that, but but actually larger solder joints like like the uh, the uh, ground pad underneath a QFN. The primary purpose of that is to dissipate heat from the component itself. And so designing that so that it's appropriate to dissipate the right amount of heat so that the, that component can last as long as possible is a very important consideration. When you talk about no clean, um, someone said this to me once at a conference and it just made a lot of sense. In the early days of, in the earlier days of no clean, whenever I talked about cleaning no clean at a live event, I'd always get the angry solder paste people, you know, in the audience, um, you know, objecting, just totally offended by the suggestion that we should uh, clean no clean. After all, they put thousands of engineering hours into coming up with this, you know, miracle flux that uh, didn't have to be cleaned and we're promoting cleaning it. But, um, but that's changed for reasons you've just stated over the, over the years. There are applications where even the small amount of residue, uh, which is benign in most ca in most applications, or you know, is not benign, you know, relative to frequency distortion and you know whatever. Um, so there was one solder paste person that that said, you know, no clean doesn't mean don't clean. No clean is the species of flux that you would use if you were to not. If, if you were to make a decision not to clean it, uh, you wouldn't use an OA flux. You wouldn't use, you know, in, in most cases, an RMA flux. Uh, but if you're not going to clean, you must use no clean. It doesn't mean don't clean. It just means it, it's a species. It's a, it's a selection type. And, th and that made a lot of sense to me. Um, and a lot of uh, flux manufacturers, again, would get offended because they would think that I'm impugning no clean. And I'm not. Uh, and... I'm the first to admit in, in almost all applications, not all, but in almost all applications, uh, the residue left behind uh, from the, the no clean flux is, is benign. It, it is not harmful electrically or ionically. Um, you know, the big issue whether to clean or not is really what else is on the board. And when we cleaned, back in the days when cleaning was, you know, just a, a, a standard protocol, one of the many steps in the assembly process, um, when we removed the flux, we removed all the other, what I like to call usual suspects, um, you know, the, the board fab contamination and component fab contamination and dirty little humans and things like that. Uh, and when we stopped targeting the flux because the flux became uh, relatively safe and inert, we left all the other things on the board. Uh, and it's the totality of all those things that become problematic, not, not just the flux. So, um, the cleaning business is still friendly with the no clean business. You know, we, we're not competitors at all. It's, it's a bigger picture beyond just the flux residue. It's everything else on the board. Uh, what are, one of my favorite topics is mistakes customers make, you know, uh, stupid people tricks. And, and, and 
what are some of the common mistakes that you've seen as a, as a solder paste person uh, that people uh, make when storing, using, whatever, uh, solder paste? It, it, you must have a, a time when you and your, your service support engineers you know, kick back and compare horror stories, right? So what are some of those common mistakes that, that you see people make in general? Yeah, I think that um, one of the biggest things that is is so clear to me now that that I've been in this industry for a while is that people generally don't spend enough time developing and optimizing the stencil printing process. And so if you think about the SMT process, um, the very first step is the stencil printing process where you're putting the solder paste onto the board. And typically, any studies that you see out there, they say 60 to 75% of all defects can be attributed back to that stencil printing process. And what's, what's great about the stencil printing process is if you identify a defect right after printing it, it costs you almost nothing to repair it. You can wash that, the solder paste off that board and oftentimes reuse that board um and and reprint uh the solder paste on it each step you go down the smt process line the more it costs you before you identify that defect and so yeah it's it's important at the end of the line after it's reflowed to to inspect it but the amount of cost to repair a circuit board that's fully assembled and fully reflowed is monumentally more than than identifying the print defect at the beginning of the process line and simply cleaning it, cleaning the board. Or even if you scrapped it, you're only scrapping the PCB itself. You're not scrapping all the expensive components that go along with it. And so we really try to emphasize the importance of the stencil printing process. And that actually goes back to your, your comment about cleaning the no cleans. The reason that people are so uh, focused on using no cleans, even though they're cleaning, um, is because the stencil printing process. A no clean material is very resistant to moisture absorption. And so that means that they're very robust for very long stencil lives. You get very consistent printing, um, and therefore you get much higher yields at the end of the process. Now, the residue itself cannot generally cannot be cleaned with just pure DI water. So you need some type of solution to, to remove the rosin constituents within that residue. Um, so so you're, you're putting a little bit more stress in the cleaning process and a little bit more time to improve that. But the benefits you get from a very high process yield with a very robust stencil printing process dramatically outweighs any additional cost that you would have for, uh, for that cleaning process. That makes a lot of sense. How's miniaturization changed the solder paste business? I, I, it's, it's, it's so hard to fathom uh, how small components have, have, have gotten over the, over the years. Uh, you know, you can barely see them. I, in one of my slides for my technical presentations, I show a dime, a U.S. dime, and there is a component within the nose of the president, you know, on the dime, right? It's, it's a, uh, I just can't understand the technology for even placing those components, much less reflowing them. So uh, how has that kept you guys on your, on your game uh, as, as components get smaller and as the soldered uh, 
the solder areas, the pad and the and the and the lead, become almost microscopic in size. Yeah, it, it's it's actually created some complex challenges. And so, one you know when you look at these very small components, you you know what if you spend all your time, you could design something that printed and reflowed really well for those small components. But the reality of the situation is you have a mix of those really small components next to some larger QFNs or other other things on the circuit board. And so you need something that not only is effective for those very small deposits, but also reflows and prints robustly for that broad spectrum of uh, components on the board. And, and so it's, you know, again, I think it's that that balance of of trying to identify the attributes that that give you the widest process window across the entire assembly. You know, from from the miniaturization, a lot of the focus is is around the uh, the powder size uh, of the of the metal powder. And so, obviously, as you go to smaller and smaller openings in your stencil aperture, you need to go to finer diameter powder uh, to to adequately adequately fill those apertures and release effectively. And so from a fundamental perspective, it's forced us to really focus on uh, finer powder technology, what the kind of the de facto standard of the of the early 2000s was what we called type three powder, which was powder that was about 25 to 45 microns in diameter. And as probably in the 2010s, Type four became the the de facto, which is twenty to thirty eight microns, so a little bit smaller powder. Now, for a lot of the assemblies, we're talking about type five, type six, type seven, even type eight powders, which are in the you know two to five micron uh, particle size, um, which creates challenges. One ma manufacturing that robustly, but also if you think about solder powder you have uh, the surface of that powder, which can become oxidized. The smaller those particles are, the more overall surface area you have to become oxidized. So oxide becomes a very significant challenge as you reduce the powder size. And so you have to look at a flux that's effectively removing those oxides. And an easy way to, to do that is to make the flux more aggressive but then you you start to fail on other things like electrical reliability uh, requirements. And so there's, again, this balancing act of can we make it reflow robustly enough? What can we do in the reflow process to make the, the, the yields more robust? And how can we balance all those other attributes that are also still really important from a, from a customer's perspective? So if the... The, the smaller the mesh, the smaller the sphere size, small, the, the type 8, for example, the extreme, um, because it is more subjective, uh, uh, more influenced by oxidation, more easily oxidized, does that mean that a type 8 uh, is not compatible with a no-clean uh, flux? Because no-cleans are the kind of the least aggressive in, in terms of, of uh, controlling oxides from what I understand maybe that's changed uh, so can you still get a type 8 and a no clean uh, footprint yeah I would say yes but I you, you're absolutely right the the let's just say the the no clean that you use for type 3 may not be a 
appropriate for the type 8. And secondarily, you may need to make other sacrifices in your process. For example, maybe you have to reflow in nitrogen to get to get effective coalescence. And so again, it's this balancing act of other what what other sacrifices are you willing to make? Sure. To to get the the process yields to where you want it to be, but absolutely agree that all things being considered, the coalescence of type eight is going to be much poorer than the coalescence of of type three, for right. example. You better have clean boards, clean components, nitrogen environment, it, all the all the all those things. That kind of brings me back to the early days of no clean, the very early days of no clean, um, in the early 90s, late 80s, you know, when the Montreal Protocol was announced and, and, and the, the rush to no clean, I remember there was a multi-core, I think, their X32 or something. That's one of the earlier ones I remember. And, you know, it, it, you basically had to use some kind of a nerd atmosphere in your oven back then because no cleans were exceptionally um, weak in terms of oxidation protection back then. Everything needed to be... Um, fresh and clean and, and ready to, and, and very solderable um, back then. And um, slowly over the years, I saw the, the, almost the, the requirement for nitrogen inertia in an oven that, and even in some wave soldering machines kind of went away because it just became not that big a deal anymore. But I think the early days of no clean uh, re- remind me of what we're you know, saying about the, the smaller, the, 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 the mesh size, you know, the type eight, Reminds me of the early days of no clean, where everything needs to be in order, right, in order for a successful reflow process to occur. Yeah, and we've we've kind of gone through some waves, like like you said, the early days of no clean, and then the advent of lead free. People were very concerned about the the reflow characteristics. When you look at tin lead solder, people use tin lead because man, it works really good. Sure, it solders well. It's easy to use. Nice so and shiny. To, it looks good. Yeah. Go into a sack reflow, all of a sudden, there's all these things. You have a higher temperature. You have all these other attributes that you have to worry about. And so there was this kind of pushback towards more nitrogen use uh, to, to try to lessen the difference between that, that transition. And then as the technologies improved, and it's not just the flux technology, but also the powder technology, how we make it, how we ensure that it um, remains oxide free prior to mixing it together. You know, it's yeah. that combination of, of, of technologies that, that has enabled us to kind of now in, I would say typical lead free assemblies, most of them are in air reflow again. But now as we, we push towards very small particles, there's this reemergence of nitrogen atmospheres to, to try to, again, make the process more robust. Yeah. I almost hate to bring this up because this subject has been beaten to death on this show and many others, but it's, it, I couldn't, I can't have a solder paste expert on the show without at least asking about voiding. Have we, is the industry no longer as concerned about voiding as they used to be? Have they, have they settled on a, a voiding, acceptable voiding percentage? Uh, it, it, I've talked to other experts in the reflow area and the x-ray area, and, and I've heard a lot of people maybe not quite as strongly as I'm going to paraphrase it, but, you know, basically say, yeah, it's all overrated. It, you know, voiding's fine. You know, that you don't need a hundred percent coverage. 70% is fine. Thir- I heard someone say 30% of coverage, you know, 70% voiding is even fine in most cases. So uh, it, have we, 
as an industry, as a solder paste industry, have we pretty much settled the whole voiding concern? And uh, if not, if there are legitimate concerns for voiding, have we reduced the amount of voiding through, through engineering? Yeah, I would say the concern is still there. Whether or not it's justified concern, I think is still very much open for debate, as you as you talked about. I think there are there are certain scenarios where it does make a difference. And for example, we, we brought up the QFNs, the large thermal ground pads underneath. Um, those have an impact on the thermal performance or the heat dissipation capable of it. And so that's something that you can define. Um, but from a mechanical reliability perspective, in, in my opinion, it's very rare that the voiding is the leading contributor to a, to a mechanical reliability failure. But the thing that makes it a little bit difficult to, to rule out completely is that the location of the void actually matters. So if you have, let's just say you have 20% voiding in, in your solder joint, but it's all at the very top interface where kind of is the narrowest or the necking point of the, of the solder joint, that's where the most stress is going to be. And yes, that, that voiding could accelerate the crack propagation. Um, and so when you look at an x-ray, you can't really tell where the void is. You know that it's there, but physically, is it at the top or the bottom or in the middle? If it's in the bulk of the solder, I would say almost never is it, a, a, is it even possible for it to be a mechanical uh, reliability uh, issue. Um, so in some cases, thermal, it, is is possible that it's uh, a thermal or heat dissipation uh, concern and theoretically if the voids in the wrong place you know either at the very top or very bottom depending on kind of the shape of the solder joint um, theoretically it could reduce the overall reliability um, but but in general yeah i would still say voiding is overrated and if we look back to let's just say back to the to the 90s before anybody had x-rays nobody talked about voiding as soon as the first x-ray machine came out all of a sudden voiding became something because they could see it yeah i've long said uh, it's it's a proven fact that x-rays cause voiding because we yeah, didn't have a exactly. voiding problem before that to your point uh, what what's the most common solder paste uh, used today in terms of of um, alloy and, and flux composition and mesh size, what, what are you, what's your kind of flying off the shelf uh, model? Yeah, I would say certainly from an alloy perspective, it's SAC 305, which is, which is tin, silver, copper with 3% silver. That's kind of the de facto standard lead-free solder today that's, that's used in the widest variety of assemblies. And those are, generally speaking, the highest volume assemblies, talking about computers, cell phones, kind of consumer consumer type products, which use a lot of the solder. Um, and generally speaking, those are all no clean type processes. So it's it's from a from a volume perspective, those are going to dominate the uh, the overall usage of, of solder paste. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's as we're getting close to wrapping up, let's talk a little bit about uh, micro dispensing and, and jetting. Uh, there's, you know, this technology has been around for a little while 
when I first heard of these um, these devices, I thought that was going to be a revolutionary uh, technology. You know, there's two types of of, of um, new technology that we have in, in our industry or any industry. There's revolutionary technology, which is something that has never been done before. And then there's evolutionary technology, which is just something smaller, faster, cheaper, uh, better than what we've already had in the past. I kind of thought that that jetting and, and microdispensing would be revolutionary. But I, from my perspective, again, I'm not in that industry, but from my perspective, I haven't seen it explode. Uh, you know, it's, it's there's only, a, from my understanding, a handful of pastes that are suitable for that type of, uh, of, uh, of technology. And it just has, it, I don't think the, the, the printer people are losing any sleep right now, uh, as I thought they might when the technology first came on the scene. So what's, what's your take on, on jetting and microdispensing? And what are the pros and cons from a solder paste manufacturer's perspective? Yeah, I think the the concept of, of a jetting or micro dispensing process and, and kind of the allure behind it is you have the ultimate flexibility, right? You don't, you don't, you're not constrained by stencils. You're not constrained by, by any geometries of the board. You can, you can do things that are, you know, non-flat surfaces, put solder paste into cavities, things like that, that, that allow you kind of more three-dimensional flexibility in your circuit board. So conceptually that that is certainly quite alluring, but the reality of the situation is still the vast majority of, of assemblies are gonna be relatively flat PCBs. And no matter how fast your jetting equipment is, it's never gonna be able to put thousands of uh, deposits down onto a circuit board in a matter of one to two seconds like you can with a, with a stencil printing process. So speed is, is so much faster with a, with a printing process. And so I think you'll never, you'll never overcome that with at least where we are today with, with kind of the jetting or micro dispensing technology. Um, and, and so, the other, the other aspect is relative to, to material cost and material performance. You're talking about, generally speaking, finer powder solder paste, which are going to be a bit more expensive, in small syringes, which are more expensive to package than jars or cartridges. So you, you have a significantly more expensive product. Um, and yes, you could... You can put it down onto a circuit board, you know, without the requirement of a stencil. But frankly, the cost and lead time for stencils are so cheap that many places you can get a new stencil, you know, within a day. Um, and so, yes, there's there's a little bit of time lag to to create a new stencil, but the cost is relatively low. Um, so you still have a lot of flexibility to create new stencils and change stencils. I think the place where it, where there is still some some interest and viability is either post assembly, so let's say secondary assembly onto a circuit board. If you already have components on a circuit board, you can't stencil print on it because you don't have a flat surface. So this allows you to come in and apply solder into different locations. This could be very applicable with the low melting point solders, as well as 
um, using it in, in places where potentially you have a cavity in your circuit board. So use the stencil printing for the, for the large portion of the, of, the, of the PCB, but then come in and jet or dispense into that cavity to, to either add or, or uh, put the solder volume in those locations. So it can be an add-on and add some flexibility, but I, I don't see that, that it's going to be a, a widespread replacement to the stencil printing process. Yeah, I, I agree. I recently interviewed uh, on the show uh, one of the founders of uh, Nano Dimension. They are kind of a th- they combine 3D printing and inkjet technology to basically print circuit boards. It, it's, it's pretty cool. They have a, a, a dielectric ink and a, a conductive ink, silver ink, and they just, you know, just like an inkjet printer, go over the, the, the surface thousands of times and build up a board. And one of their claimed advantages is, you know, we no longer are, we're no longer boxed into a flat surface for a board. You know, right now we're taking flat boards and putting them in round objects. And, and, and uh, now they can, they can actually print a board that is arc shaped or uh, angular and things like that, which sound really good from a packaging perspective. But then, you know, how do you print it? <laughs> you can't print a L-shaped board in a stencil printer, right? So uh, I think as that technology scales up and people are able to print custom-shaped assemblies or boards, rather, for their end-use product, that will certainly um, benefit from the the, um, the micro dispensing and jetting, you know, because they can basically print, you know, uh, exactly where they want the 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 um, paste to go, and then rotate the board and print more, and then rotate the board and print more, and and uh, or you know, have it done robotically so the board can stay in one place and and the and the the jet arm can go you know wherever it needs to go. So I I, I see that as as you know a, a very fringe technology that has some potential for a very custom technology. Uh, and and I don't think it's going to go away. I think it's it's probably going to increase. But of course, flat you know is is efficient, right? So uh, if we can keep things yeah. flat and planar, then then that then we can get volume and volume usually, you know, also gives us a, a much lower price. So. Yeah. And, and there's competing technologies to making that uh, round or non-flat surface, right? You could, you could also think about, well, let's, let's apply everything to a flexible circuit and then bend it. Right. Or, yep. you know, one of the, one of the cool things that we work on at Indium corporation is gallium based liquid metals. And so these are liquid at room temperature, they're electrically conductive, and so if you have a fluid, therefore it's you have total flexibility of the of the substrate, and you can still conduct, you know, conduct electricity through it. And so there are some you know cool other approaches to to addressing that flexibility or non-flat surfaces. And so I I do think uh, kind of that jetting microspensing plays a role in in broadening those those types of scenarios that that we could potentially um, enable solder to be used in talk about liquid um, at room temperature i remember way back in high school you know a thousand years ago in science class the um, teacher wanted to show us mercury and the way he showed us mercury is he had one student uh, uh, hold their hands out like this 
and he poured the mercury into that person's hand, and our our and that person would then pour it into someone else's hand, and it went around the room as a liquid in the air sample, right? That we're handling, and I, I don't think the you know the, the the dangers of mercury poisoning were really fully understood, you know, back in you know 1974, you know, when when this happened, but. Um, but that was the, and then I remember someone dropped it, and of course it just scattered into a million tiny little balls. But um, that was my experience with liquid metal, right? That was um, very interesting, and, and looking back, probably pretty pretty stupid <laughs> to do it that way. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, actually, uh, sorry, I was just going to yeah. say that you know now most of those mercury ac applications have been replaced by gallium, but mercury still has some very phenomenal characteristics other than the fact that it's it's quite hazardous to human life it's yes. very unique that it doesn't doesn't oxidize and right. so unlike gallium gallium forms an oxide film on the surface which is something that you have to try to deal with but mercury is is quite unique in that and so it is a it is a very cool metal unfortunately uh a bit too toxic for most applications right right um well i'm I'm 60 now, so obviously, it, if there are um, lasting effects, it, it hasn't hit me yet. But uh, or maybe it hasn't. <laughs> I just don't know. Uh, let's wrap up with this. Besides the obvious cost, right? Besides the price of solder paste, uh, how does one choose a solder paste supplier? I, there's a lot of solder paste supp suppliers out there. I'm sure all make good products, uh, and and some may have some specialties. I know Indium is known for certain types of products more than maybe others. Uh, but uh, what's, what's your recommendation to choose a company to work with besides price? I mean, I, I don't want to get into the, like, the commoditization of, of, of these materials. Um, uh, I think that's just a, a race to nowhere, right? It's a race to the bottom when people just put price in front of everything. So take price out of the equation. Um, what's your advice to uh, people? Besides pick up the phone and call Indium, you know, uh, what are some of the <laughs> yeah, selection of course, criteria? Yes, of course. Yeah, I, I think that for sure the very first thing is to make sure that the, the supplier has the appropriate product for your application. Like you said, there's many different solder paste suppliers. All of them are making good products for a variety of different applications, but not every solder paste is right for every application. And so... So aligning kind of the overall needs, so understanding what specifically you need, whether it's a melting point requirement or reliability requirement, some type of different process like we talked about, jetting or, or very long stencil life, or maybe it has to be exposed to certain levels of humidity. And so understanding your requirements and making sure it's a good match for, for the, the products that you're evaluating is is certainly number one and then then looking at the the supplier that that can support your needs and that that's could be from a technical perspective can we can they help address any ongoing technical needs to help you optimize your process make sure that you you get the highest yields possible if there's an issue do they have the quality practices in place to to ensure that they resolve the, the issues effectively and have, you know, kind of continuous improvement programs to ensure that those issues don't happen again in the future. And then I guess the third would be kind of 
global availability, you know, making sure that that support and supply is effectively available in the places where you're going to need it, whether you're whether you're building in the United States, Mexico, China, Vietnam, wherever it may be, make sure that 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 supplier can support all of those locations effectively. Again, from a material perspective, from a quality perspective, as well as a technical support perspective. Well, that's very good advice. Uh, Tim Jensen, thank you so much for agreeing to be my guest today. Uh, I really appreciate all your wisdom and, and knowledge and advice. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Thanks for listening or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and so many more. Also, be sure to check out my other podcasts, including the Concept to Creation podcast, where I feature conversations with entrepreneurs within the electronic assembly space, and the Innovations and Technology podcast, where we discuss innovative products within our industry. All three shows are also available in video format. Check out the Reliability Matters or Concept to Creation or Innovations and Technology podcasts on YouTube. Just search the show's name and you can find all three shows. Or go to MikeConrad.com. That's Conrad with the K. All three shows also appear there. Again, thanks for being part of my podcast family. I appreciate you being here. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay happy. And of course, keep doing it right. See you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.